We open the Holy Scriptures to 1 John chapter 3. We will read together the entire chapter, 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things." Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures, the basis of this passage and the rest of the Word of God, we consider the instruction of Lord's Day 9. 
Question 26 asks, What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further, that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful Father. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 9 begins our Catechism's explanation of the contents of saving faith. The fundamental truths revealed by God concerning himself, which things are necessary for a Christian to believe. In Lord's Day 8, last time, we noted that the Apostolic Creed arranges the fundamental contents of our saving faith according to that glorious truth of the Trinity. The deep mystery, the profound truth which God himself reveals to us in his word, that the one true and living God is one God, yet three in person. There is one God, yet three distinct divine persons who are that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is through the work of the triune God that we elect sinners are called out of darkness into marvelous light and given the most precious gift of salvation accomplished by the triune God. And so Lord's Day 9 begins expounding upon the main truths of the Christian faith. And it begins with that first article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Lord's Day focuses our attention particularly upon the first person of the Trinity, though not exclusively, since the works of God mentioned in this Lord's Day, such as creation and providence, are not exclusively the work of the Father, but are the works of the triune God. Yet nonetheless, the Lord's Day would have us dwell upon the person of the Father. And as we dwell upon the person of the Father, glorious truths concerning the one true and living God come forth before us. Our God is our Father. And that's an amazing truth. That we can call the one true and living God our Father. Not just our Creator, but our Father. 
That's really the focus of Lord's Day 9. Though Lord's Day 9, in a parenthetical statement, brings out the foundational doctrine of creation and providence, which will be treated in more depth in Lord's Day 10, the focus, the main concept of Lord's Day 9, is the fatherhood of God. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is Our Father for Jesus' sake. And that's the truth that we want to meditate upon this morning and apply to ourselves especially. The fatherhood of God. As a last point of introduction, it's important for us to understand that the concept of fatherhood is not a human concept drawn from earth life down here which is then imposed upon God. No, human fatherhood and human motherhood putting both together human parenthood, has been designed by God to reflect in a beautiful way something of who God is. Human fatherhood and human motherhood is not the original concept which is imposed upon God, but rather God is father in himself and God has created and designed fatherhood and motherhood among human beings to capture something of who he is and to beautifully reflect that. God is Father in Himself. Let's look at this truth and explore what it means for us. God the Father, that's our theme. And we're going to look at three aspects of this truth, the fatherhood of God. Three aspects which come out in the Lord's day. We're going to start with God's fatherhood of creation, then of Jesus Christ, and then conclude with his fatherhood of you and me and all of his believing people. God is the father of creation. What do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that God is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. A basic component of the idea of God's fatherhood is that he causes to be. He brings forth in an act of love. We see that in the opening pages of the Bible. Likely our minds immediately go there to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 2. Where we read that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. God as creator brought forth all things by the word of his power. He caused to be. He brought forth that which was not. He gave it its being. He brought the creation into existence by the power of his word and the operation of his spirit. He is the creator of all things. Heaven and earth and every creature that inhabits the creation that God made. He caused it to be. He is the father of creation. That's why one of our other reformed creeds, the Belgic Confession, speaks about God the Father this way in Article 8. That the Father referring now especially to the first person of the Trinity, is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things. Then, later in the Belgic Confession, Article 12, 
We read this, we believe that the Father, by the word that is by his Son, hath created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures, as it seemed good unto him, giving unto every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its creator. God as Father created all things, brought them forth. The Catechism would set before us briefly some important parts of that doctrine of creation, which we do well to take note of a moment this morning. In the parenthetical statement, it explains that God of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them. This is the Bible doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And that Latin phrase is one we should be acquainted with. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. And that sets apart God's creative work from every other creative work. God made us as human beings to be a people who make things, create things. But human creativity, human making, human building is categorically different than God's creating. God created out of nothing. That means there was no pre-existing materials that he used to create the world and to create the creatures that he would put in his world. Whenever we make something or build something, we have to use something else that's already there. The builder must use his building materials to construct that home. He must use the stone found in the earth to make his concrete. He must harvest the wood from the forest that is already there to build that house. We can make nothing without using materials God has already provided for us. Not so with God. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The powerful voice of the Creator brought into being His creation. When we understand that aspect of the doctrine of creation, it leads us, does it not, to bow in awe and worship our God who created the world out of nothing by the word of His power. But now, as we think about God's work of creation, let's connect this back to the main idea of God's fatherhood. The Apostolic Creed in its first article says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Maker of heaven and earth. And the Apostolic Creed does not, without reason, join those two ideas together. The Apostolic Creed, as well as our Catechism, casts the doctrine of creation in terms of God's fatherhood. And the Catechism now highlights this in order to bring out the positive nature of God's relationship to His creation. God is not a God who is indifferent to creation. God is not a God who created this world in order to simply burn it later. God is much more like an artist who pours his heart into into painting a masterpiece. And when he has finished that masterpiece, he takes delight in it. So it is with God. His bringing forth of his creation was an act of love. On God's part. How else could it be said in Psalm 
145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all His works. God delights in His creation. And thus He has a fatherly care for His creation. He provides for the works of His hands. As He by His providence brings the rain that the crops need. We just had our prayer day service. Which focused on this very truth. God's care for his creation. And it's not an indifferent, a cold care. But it is a fatherly care. God is a God who delights in the works of his hands. And cares for them. And takes delight in caring for them. To use language drawn from our Belgic confession. God, after he created all things, did not forsake them. Did not give them up to fortune or chance, but upholds and governs the works of his hands according to his holy will. God is intimately involved in his creation. Now while it is true that the triune God, all three persons of the Godhead, performed the work of creation in concert and performed the work of providence in concert, yet the scriptures reveal it is the first person, God the Father, Who is especially on the foreground when we speak about God as the father of creation. The father, the first person of the Trinity. Spoke. And by his word, the second person of the Trinity. Called the worlds into being. And by his spirit. Who moved upon the face of the waters. Performed that work of creation. God the Father who is the cause, origin and beginning of all things. Stands in the foreground of this mighty work. Creation. That's why the apostolic creed is right. To speak of God the Father as the maker of heaven and earth. That's not to say the Son and the Holy Spirit played no part. Or are not the creator of heaven and earth. But it puts the Father in the foreground as the scriptures do. That in in brief is God's fatherhood of creation. He brought creation into being. And he cares for the works of his hands. Let's draw out some implications of this truth. That it may be applied to us. Why is this significant? Well in the first place. That God is the creator of heaven and earth, and that God has a fatherly care for his creation, is a beautiful truth that refutes all of the erroneous and comfort-destroying philosophies of our day and age that are the outgrowths of evolutionism. Evolutionism, which is the secular philosophy that the world came to be out of itself. That the world as it is now is simply the byproduct of unguided natural processes. Such that there is no meaning. There is no purpose. Everything that is, is a cosmic accident. Which is eventually heading towards death and destruction. Such a comfort robbing philosophy that prevails in our day. falls flat before this simple truth of the Bible which warms your heart does it not? 
that we are not the advanced product of years, years and years of animal evolution. That there is purpose and meaning to our human lives in this world. Because God made all things. And God is in control of all things. And God has fashioned us for himself. Making our chief end to be his glory. And enjoying him forever. The basic truth that God is the creator. That God is the father of creation. Is a truth that comforts our hearts in the midst of this world. But now in the second place, the truth that God is the creator, that God is the father of creation, emphasizes God's real love and care for the works of his hands. That implies something about how we live in the world. We should care for the works of God's hands as well. Not that we become the earth worshippers of our day, the radical environmentalists, but We should be good stewards and caretakers of the creation which God has given us. Just as God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. He gave them dominion over the works of his hands and called them to dress, to keep that garden, to cultivate it, to exercise dominion over the creation in such a way that it brought glory to God. So too ought we in our use of God's creation. It's not here for us to ruin or to exploit however we wish but to use for God's glory. Just as we are to be good stewards of absolutely every material thing that God puts in our hands, we should be conscious of this calling too, that in our use of the world, God's glory should be our chief aim. Third, the value of creation in the life of the child of God. For one thing, We have God's general revelation in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. As the Belgic Confession says, all of creation around us is as an open book and each and every creature a character, a word in that book which we can read by the eyes of faith. And all of those words throughout the creation all direct our attention to the Creator, the Father, that we may bow and worship before Him. There is great value That the creation has for the Christian. It is an open book. That leads us to glorify God. And in the creation. We see something of the creator. In the creation. We learn something about our father. We're moved to worship him. And then there's this too. Is not the creation round about us. Something refreshing. Something wholesome. Observing a sunrise or a sunset. Retreating into the solitude of the woods. Walking along the lake shore. So many other things that are refreshing, good, and wholesome. That's God's, one of God's purposes with creation. He has given us this marvelous world and He uses it for our good. What a blessing. It's true, we live in a fallen, broken, sin-stained world. We don't don't take anything away from that. Nonetheless, do we appreciate what a gift we've been given? Even in this present creation. 
Finally, God's care and provision for His creation as Creator is something that itself assures us of His care and provision for us. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 6 verse 26 where He makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? As we look out at the creation, the work of God's hands, and the marvelous providential government of our God over the creation, how He provides for the fish, the birds, the animals, how He keeps the seasons in their cycle, Will not this God who so cares for the brute creation, will He not also care for us? Indeed, He will. That's the point of Jesus' argument there in Matthew 6. And so as we look out upon the creation round about us, we see testimonies here and there and everywhere of God's goodness to us and His faithfulness to us. Think of the last time you saw a rainbow. How God placed that rainbow in the sky using that part of creation to send a message to His people, I am faithful. I am faithful to you. But now, though the Catechism has much to tell us about God as Creator, as the Father of creation, really the heart of the Lord's Day is that God is the Father of Of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fatherhood of God. On the deepest level. Refers to the intra-trinitarian relationship. Of God the Father. To God the Son. The first person of the Trinity. God the Father. Is eternally. The father of the second person of the Trinity. God the Son. Who in the fullness of time. Came and took upon our flesh. Our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the deep truth which the Catechism focuses our attention on. The very first line of of answer 26. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is for the sake of Christ his Son. My God and my Father. The first person of the Trinity is the eternal Father of the Son. The second person of the Trinity Here the catechism is describing a teaching of the Bible that is equally deep as the doctrine of the Trinity. Something, the depths of which we can never fully plunge or plumb with our limited human minds. It's describing something of the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity within the one being of God. It's setting before us what is called in theology the doctrine of the eternal begetting of the Son. In eternity, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, begets God the Son. And God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And God the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father to the Son. And from the Son to the Father. Those are the personal properties of the three persons of the Trinity. Which distinguish those three persons from one another. Such that they are distinct divine persons. God the Father 
is eternally the Father of the Son. And God the Son is eternally the Son of the Father. And yet this Father-Son relationship which exists eternally within the Godhead is so very different from our human Father-Son relationships. Because God the Father and God the Son are co-essential, remember. They equally share the one divine essence. Which means they are co-eternal. The Father is not before the Son and the Son is not after the Father. They are co-equal. There is no subordination within the Trinity. God the Father doesn't have a higher rank than God the Son. God the Father is not in possession of more authority than the Son. They are equal. It's a deep, deep mystery that the Bible teaches and that the Catechism explains here. God the Father is the eternal Father of God the Son. And this describes the rich life, covenant life, that the one true and eternal God enjoys within Himself. Fatherhood belongs to the very being of God. Just as God never became God, but is God, so too, God never became Father. He eternally is. This Father-Son relationship between the first person and the second person is an eternal relationship. Not endless in its time extent, but timeless. It is a perfect relationship of love and fellowship. And that brings out some very important implications. Though we cannot fully wrap our minds around this truth, yet we can still draw from it beautiful applications. In the first place, this truth emphasizes to us that God is a relational God. Down to the depths of His divine being, He is a relational personal God. He is not a power. He is not a force. He is not some abstract principle. He is not merely the first cause of all things. He is a personal God who enjoys within Himself intimate covenant life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Living eternally in fellowship. Mutually delighting in one another. One verse of scripture that gives us a glimpse into this intra-Trinitarian life of God. Is John 1 verse 18. Where the inspired apostle writes, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The only begotten Son is eternally in the bosom of the Father. And that that expression indicates an intimate fellowship, an intimate knowing of one another, person to person. That's the covenant life of God within Himself. 
And now, because that is who God is in Himself, that's how God works outside of Himself. His work of salvation is a covenantal work. It is a relational work. Salvation aims at bringing God's people into the warm embrace of His fellowship. Indeed, giving His people even to taste something of the bliss and the joy and the glory of God's own life. That's the wonder of salvation. But now a second implication of this teaching we ought to see is that in God's counsel and in God's plan, Christ is absolutely first. He is the Son of God. For He is the one and only begotten Son of God. All things are for Him. Just as all things were created by Him. That's Colossians 1.16. The world that God brought into being is for Christ and for His glory. All creatures that God has made, including us, His people, whom He created and whom He has redeemed, are for Christ. All things are for Him and for His glory. And there you see the tremendous love of God for His only begotten Son. God the Father Created all things by Him and for Him. And the wonder of salvation is this as well. That the love of the Father for His only begotten Son. Pours out to us as well. Who are made children of God through the work of the only begotten Son. But now that brings us to the great personal truth that this Lord's Day above all seeks to impress upon our hearts. That God, who is the creator of all things, the father of creation, and the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Is my God and Father. For the sake of his son Jesus Christ. That's a wonder when you stop and think about it. God is pleased to extend his fatherhood. To you and me. Who do not deserve it. Who do not deserve it especially on account of our sinfulness as fallen creatures. Who of ourselves would deserve to be cast away from him. God extends his fatherhood and his fatherly love to you and me. And gathers us into his saving embrace. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and Father. That's the wonder with which 1 John 3 begins, right in verse 1. 
Behold, the text says. Stop. Ponder this. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And sons there isn't just a masculine term. The idea is children. That we should be called children of God. Sons and daughters of God. How can this be? How can this be? The scriptures reveal that God has chosen His people. He has ordained us to sonship, to daughterhood. Ephesians 1 verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. He chose His people. He gave them to Christ. Gave them to Christ to be redeemed. And then in the fullness of time as Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says. When the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman. Made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. The only begotten son took upon himself our flesh. Was made man. That he might obtain for us the adoption of sons. And he did that through his substitutionary atonement and through his obedience to the law on our behalf whereby he saved us from our sins. He wiped away our guilt. He merited and obtained for us the rights and the privileges of sonship and daughterhood so that we have been adopted now into the covenant family of God. And our adoption papers are written in the blood of Christ Shed for us on the cross of Calvary. Being adopted, we have the legal rights of children. A share in the Father's inheritance. A place in His house. The right to call Him Father. And to look unto Him for the provision of our needs. It is not only that are adopted and receive the legal standing of children through the blood through the blood of Jesus Christ, but God also works in us by the Spirit of Christ to renew us day by day, to refashion us more and more in the image of Christ, to impart to us something of God's own life. That's what happens at regeneration. When we are born again spiritually, the new life of Jesus Christ is implanted into our hearts. New, everlasting life. We're new creatures. We're children of God. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. What does this truth mean for us? It means comfort, it means peace, it means joy, it means assurance, it means I have a foundation, a rock upon which to ground my life. I have a dependable 
Father upon whom I can rely so entirely that I may rest in blessed assurance no matter what happens to me in this life. That's the personal application that the second half of Lord's Day 9 makes. After explaining to us the wonder of our sonship, our daughterhood, that God is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. Now here's what that means, practically speaking. On whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. A good father provides. He provides for his children. He knows what they need. And he gives to them what they need. He loves them. And so he's willing to do so. Sometimes earthly fathers, though they're willing, they may lack the ability. Not so with God our Father as the, as the catechism concludes Lord's Day 9. He's both willing and able. Willing being a faithful father, able being almighty God. So we can look to him for our needs. The provision of our daily bread, all things necessary for our bodies, for the carrying out of the vocations he gives us in this world. God in love will always provide our necessities. That he promises. And we understand necessities, not wants. God knows what we need better than we do. Often we think we need things that we really don't. And so we shouldn't expect more or less than what God promises. Yes, sometimes, oftentimes, he's generous. He gives us above and beyond our needs. But when he does, we mustn't take that for granted or be disappointed when he withholds. There are times when God must withhold many earthly things from us for the good of our souls. He is wise. He knows what is best. Let us rely, rely upon him entirely for all that we need. But the catechism goes on to highlight what might be one of the greatest privileges of being a child of God. Namely, that we can rely on Him so entirely that we may have no doubt that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn to my advantage. The reality is this earthly life is a valley of tears. There is so much sorrow. There is so much trouble. That is the continual experience of the child of God. As he walks through this valley. Towards the father's house. Heavenly glory. God doesn't promise us an easy life. God does not promise he will avert all evil. Or turn away all adversity from us. But what he does promise. Is that he will turn those adversities. To our advantage. See God is too good. He's too good to us. 
to deprive us of all adversity. He's too wise to avert all afflictions from us because he is always aiming for our highest good. And sometimes the highest good is not what is most comfortable for us here and now. God aims for the highest good. And he knows that sometimes we need the refining power of adversity and affliction in our lives. And so he sends evil upon us in this valley of tears. He sends adversity. Notice the strong language of the catechism. He sends it. But there's comfort in that language. That evil is not doing its own thing. That evil doesn't send itself. That evil doesn't wreak havoc on your life independent of God your Father. But that evil, as much as it might rage and as much as it might seek to do the will of the devil, is nonetheless under the power of God your Father who sends it to do His bidding. And it is God's will that is ultimately accomplished. And God's will for his children is your highest good. Every evil that comes upon you has been sent by Father. And that means it will and it must turn to your advantage. Even if you can't see it right now. Even if you can't understand how that could possibly be. Look at him. Who he is. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So that adversity. It may hurt. It may hurt very deeply. But it will not destroy Look at Jesus. Look at the only begotten Son. See what God did in Christ? See the evil God sent on His only begotten Son? See how God turned the most horrible evil to your greatest advantage? When God the Son in our flesh was taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain and the greatest sin ever perpetrated on the face of the planet was turned to your and my eternal advantage. There is God, the Father, turning even greatest evil for good. And because of what He has done in Christ, And at the cross, he'll do that in the evils. He'll do that with the evils in your life too. For Christ's sake, every one of them will turn to your advantage. Even if those evils, those adversities leave their scars. Sometimes they do. Sometimes deep scars. How many of God's people go through this life? With scars. Those two. God turns for good. Does he not? Look again to Christ. 
Look at Christ's scars. Look upon the nail prints on his hands and feet. Those scars which are now the icons of his love and of his glory. So it will be with our scars too. God makes those scars beautiful like Christ's scars. Is there anything more beautiful to the eyes of faith? The nail printed hands of Jesus Christ. And so the application beloved for each of us to take away with this morning. Trust your father. Do you grieve? Are you in pain? Are you perplexed? Is your life right now a valley full of tears? Does it seem as though there's evil beyond remedy? Look to your Father. Look to His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. See what He has done for you in Christ. You can rely on Him so entirely that your soul may be at rest even in the deepest places of this valley of tears. Let us, beloved, bask in the soul-warming light of this glorious truth that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, our souls are thrilled that we can say those words. Father, that in those words is contained a world of meaning, is contained thy love, thy care, thy compassion for us. In those words comes to expression the trust that we can have in Thee, because Thou dost provide for all of our needs. And even in the deepest places of this valley of tears, Thou dost turn all evil to our profit. Impress this truth upon our hearts, Father, especially those of Thy people who grieve, or who are perplexed, or who are struggling with great trials. Lift their eyes to thee. Cause them to see and to experience thy fatherly care in Jesus Christ. May this word send us forward into a new week. Encouraged and strengthened. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.